2 Timothy. Who wrote 2 Timothy? Uh, it's very simple. It tells us, as you read verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle, right? Well, this is something that is very accepted across the board. This isn't usually something that's argued. Usually you come across skeptics of the scripture and they go, well, this was someone after the, the original writer or something like that. Not here. Uh, pretty much everyone accepts the fact that Paul the Apostle wrote this. Um, all of the early church fathers say that Paul the Apostle wrote this. This is not something that's usually argued. But who is Paul? And most of us in this room, probably all of us in this room, would know who Paul is. Well, the word Paul simply means small, little. Uh, in fact, there's a song by a band I really like. It's called uh, Little Man. It's about Paul. It's a really awesome song. But um, this little man, who is he? What is he all about? Well, if we go back to Acts chapter 7, he's introduced. And in Acts chapter 7, you could turn there. I'm not going to really read a whole lot from there. But in Acts chapter 7, we see the stoning of the first deacon of the church, Stephen. And in the stoning uh, of this man, in the destruction of this man's body, we see the Pharisees lay their coats at the foot of, of a young man. And this young man, uh, in Acts chapter 8, actually spoke the word that they were able to stone him to death. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. So we see that Paul, who was known as Saul at that time, the word Saul means uh, exalted, someone to be praised, um, was a Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a very young critic of Christianity. He was a hater of all things Jesus. And we see in Acts chapter 9 this amazing conversion, this humbling thing that happens to Paul, the apostle. You see, he's on his, road, he's on his way uh, on the road to Damascus to destroy Christians, to imprison them, women, men, to, to pull children from fathers and mothers, and to bring them back to Jerusalem so that he can do the same thing to them that, that they did to Stephen. In Acts chapter 7, kill them. That's who this man is. He's a murderer. And he has this experience with Jesus. You see, Paul, otherwise known as Saul at that time, was incredibly educated in Judaism. He was actually one of the top scholars at the time. He uh, studied under a man named Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a, the top teacher of Jerusalem. And uh, Saul, it was said that Saul was hard to keep a book in front of because literally he would read it and you couldn't get another book in front of him fast enough so that he could, you know, destroy, eat up the, the pages of the book. So he was a, a very well-educated man, yet he didn't know the God that he said he served. He, he thought he did, but he didn't know that God until he was on the road and Jesus appears to him. Jesus shows himself to, to Saul, who became Paul, who we're talking about. And in that moment, he's knocked off of his high horse, so to say. It's actually knocked off his horse, and he goes blind. And in the conversation with Jesus, he realizes that Jesus is Kyrios, Lord, Lord of all, commander-in-chief, director of my life. And we see this change from the exalted man to the humbled small man. And this is who wrote this letter. This is the man who has presented himself in this letter. And, and we're going to see... Uh, the importance of this letter. What What is the biggest importance of this letter? And, and actually, I'll just jump right into that real quick. This is Paul's last letter. This is the last thing that Paul wrote before he died. And as you could see, he writes it to Timothy, who you see in verse 2, he calls his son, a beloved son. And I believe that he's saying that in two ways. 
that Timothy is a beloved son in the way that he's a son of God, but I also think that Timothy is endeared to Paul. Paul is serious about this young man. He, his, the last letter he writes, the last letter that at least we have in Scripture that he writes, is written to this young man, he says, is a son. And just imagine what that looks like. A man writing to his son as he's imprisoned, we're going to get to that, ready to die. What are the last things that you're going to say to someone? What are the most important things that you have to say to the, one of the most important young men in your life? That's what this letter is. It's a letter from a father to a son about the most important things that he could tell him. It's in regard to Timothy himself, as well as the church, his concern for the church. We see his concern for the church in, uh, in chapter 3, verse 12 and 13, if you want to look. Where it says, Yes, And all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution, but evil men and impostors will and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. He's saying, Look, I'm very worried about the church because impostors are coming and they're going to deceive. They're going to try to destroy everything that the Lord has done through my life and through your life, Timothy. Some very important things that, that he would write. And I just think of like my son Salem, if I was knowing that I was on my way to my deathbed, to, to execution, getting my head cut off, what are the things that I would say to my son? Be strong. Be godly. Follow after Christ. Love the people in the church. These are all things that we see throughout this last epistle that Paul writes. So that's the what. Where? Where Where did he write this? Uh, he wrote it from the, the Mamertine prison, which that's not what it was called at the time when Paul was there, but it's what it's called now today. It's in Rome. Um, it's a prison that isn't like what we have today. The prisons of that time were temporary holding cells, Till judgment was made, and then they would go and execute judgment, whatever that judgment was, fines, execution, whatever it may be. Uh, but it wasn't a place where you held someone for a long time. This is different than what Paul experienced in Acts chapter 28 when he was imprisoned in house arrest, where they kept him secured to a Roman guard, and we're watching over him, watching after him. It wasn't with the intent of execution. But here in the Mamertine prison, he's on his way to death. And this right here, this is not a place that you want to be. Our prisons today, you go there, our jails or our prisons, you go there, it's, it's kind of comfortable. <laughs> it's a place that prisoners actually get used to. It's a place that very often they want to go back to after they get out. It's free food, free internet. Free cable, free house, free everything. Mamertine prison, not like that. Stone cell, dark and closed. Nothing to do. No in and out of, of people you love. That's None of that is happening. This is a place that you're being held securely away from people. So we see... His suffering in chapter 1, verse 12, as well as uh, chapter 1, verse 8, chapter 1, 16. He's chained. He's in prison. He's suffering. It's a hard thing. And as we read, as we get into the, the book, it's amazing some of the stuff he has to say. Him speaking of mercy and grace and, and peace. I mean, just things that don't normally come from people who are struggling and suffering and in pain. It's a beautiful thing to see what the Holy Spirit does in the life of a man who is fully committed. When was this written? It was written sometime between 66 and 68 AD. Uh, 
His first imprisonment took place somewhere between 62 and 64 AD. Um, and, and the craziest thing about all of this is this is taking place right as Caesar Nero is blaming the Christians for the fires in Rome, which destroyed major portions of Rome. Uh, Caesar Nero now is accepted as the, the source of the fire that destroyed most of Rome because he wanted to rebuild. He was a builder. He wanted to beautif beautify Rome. But he blamed the Christians for two reasons, his hatred for Christ. Secondly, they were an easy scapegoat. They were people that were kind of new on the scene and a lot of people didn't like them already. So, it very well could be that this last imprisonment takes place because of the lie that Caesar Nero came up with about the Christians. You see, who was the, the Christian who was leading the Gentile church at the time? It was Paul the Apostle. It very, very well could be that Paul the Apostle was put on trial because of the fires. Why? Why was this written? Well, um, like I said, if you were about to die and you knew it, what would you be writing? What would be the thing that was important? You would reach out to the people that, that held the, the highest position in your life, right? For me, my wife and my children, I'd be writing them letters day after day, telling them I love them telling them I desire to be with them, telling them what, what is going to help them after my passing. All of these things, this is what we see in this letter. Who was it written to? We talked about a little bit Timothy. He calls him his son. Timothy uh, is an is a awesome name, though. Timotheus is the Greek, and uh, time means to honor. Theos is God. So his name is to honor God. That's who he's writing to, a young man who honors God. And, and we know that this is something that's been passed down from his mother, his grandmother even. We see that in 2 Timothy 1.5 and Acts chapter 16, verse 1. Um, and we see that Paul actually meets Timothy in Acts chapter 14 and was one of the men who instructed him and, and brought him with him. This is why he uh, calls him a son in the faith, because he raised him up. We see also in Acts chapter 16 that Paul took Timothy with him on a second journey uh, through what is Asia Minor. And Timothy is also on Paul's third journey. Timothy was the young man that he would send to after establishing a church. It's pretty amazing. Uh, that's a pretty uh, like secure spot to have. Like, hey, you know, I just set this church up. I need you to come up behind me and raise them up. Why? Because you're the only one that thinks like I do. You're the only person that I could trust that thinks exactly like me, that knows the things of God, that I could tr entrust the church with. And where was Timothy pastoring at this time? Most likely Ephesus. Uh, many of you have heard about Ephesus, what Ephesus was all about. Ephesus was the, one of the central trading hubs for Asia Minor. It was uh, one of like the capital cities of the Roman Empire in Asia Minor. It was also the home of the Temple of Diana, which was a house of prostitution. This was an incredibly vile place to live. There was over a thousand temple prostitutes that would go out every night and prostitute their bodies to the sailors, to the tradesmen, and, and bring them back to the temple, both women and men. Um, this was a very disgusting place, and this is exactly where this young man was located. This is where he was pastoring. So you can imagine Paul's heart for him. 
and being afraid for him. A key verse of the the book, chapter 2, verse 15, which says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And with that, I think we can jump right into the word of God. Chapter 1, verse 1, 2 Timothy 1, 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. So again, we look at Paul, and what does he call himself? He calls himself an apostle. What is an apostle? An apostle is someone who's delegated to go and represent someone else. Uh, we we have delegates that go to other countries representing the U.S. today, right? Um, these people are are supposed to be our spokesmen in those areas. Paul was was that he was Jesus Christ's spokesman to the Gentile church. We also see that he has a heart and a desire to see the salvation of the Jews and Romans. In fact, so much that he'd give his own salvation if they were to get saved. So. But he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, Jesus his Savior. He's he's there to represent Christ. And the question in regard to our lives and how that applies to our lives is, are we truly sent out ones of Christ? Are we truly delegates of Christ? Like when people look at us, do they go, that's who I go to to talk about Jesus. When the world, those who are outside of the church, need to know more about the Bible or the things of God, Are they willing to come to you and say, hey, I have a question? Or do our lives not represent Christ? Do we not look like someone that is delegating for Jesus? I think that's a big question. I think that our lives should represent Christ in all things. And I I don't mean that we should be living perfect. It would be amazing if you could. If you learn the secret, tell me. I don't know it. But what I do know is that a a true man or woman of Christ is going to represent Jesus in a way that when we mess up, we're we're the first to apologize. We're the first to ask for forgiveness. We're the first to point to Jesus and say, I'm saved by grace through faith. Thank God he took the punishment for my sin. At the same time, there should be a level of holiness in our lives, a, a level of of sanctity, that people are able to look into our lives and go, yeah, there's something different about you. I don't know exactly what it is, but there's something different. And then we could give the message. Paul's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And notice that. It's not by Paul's will. It's not like he worked his, you know, his hardest and became an apostle he started out as a deacon and then he became a pastor and then he worked his way into the apostleship and now he's lord over all that's not that's not what we're talking about here he's holding a position in the church by the will of god and do we honestly believe that about ourselves you see in first corinthians chapter 12 13 and 14 it tells us that the body of christ as the body of christ we all do have positions in the church We all have a work to do. And it is by the will of God. I had a really awesome conversation with a young man. I I picked him up. He was hitchhiking. I didn't have my family. And I was driving to the church for men's study. Um, And I saw this young man, long hair, really goofy glasses, and kind of Elton John looking things. And he had his thumb up. And I grabbed him and said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to Surrey. I said, awesome. So I We got in the car, we start driving, and we start talking about uh, uh, the church. And he said, oh, I'm a believer, and I I thought that was amazing. He told me a few things that made me really question that. But um, I asked him if he had been going to church, and he said no. And I asked him why. And he said, well, um, there's multiple reasons why I've been hurt by the church, but I also just haven't found one that's right for me. And I said, okay, well, how hard are you looking? Where are you going? Um, I'm sure there's one in your area that's perfectly fine. I could even give you some ideas. 
But uh, I asked him if he realized the importance of the church. And he said that he knew it was important because that's what Christians do. And I said to him, that's not why a church is important. The church is the body of Christ. And I said to him, what, you know, what, what would happen if your kidney just decided to you know, not be in your body anymore? Stop hanging out in the body. He said, well, I would die. I said, yeah, you'd, maybe. You'd get sick. Your kidney would die. The kidney would die, the body would get sick. It's the same thing with the body of Christ. If we're not fellowshipping with God's people, the body's not getting all of the sustenance that it needs. That's, that's how the body is. At the same time, the part of the body that's not part of the church, not involved in the church, is dying. Fellowship is integral to, to living as a Christian. It's important. We are the body, the, the, the church of Christ, right? By the will of God. He continues in verse 1 by saying, According to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. And, it, and this right here, it's, it's funny. Um, me and Oliver just sat down with two Mormons and had a, a pretty funny conversation. I was sitting there eating Doritos as Oliver was you know, correcting Mormons. It was hilarious. Um, it went really well. It was a very exciting thing. The young men... Uh, took some of what we had to say, and as Oliver said, there's definitely a rock in the sole of their shoe. Uh, but, but truth be told, Oliver asked them, hey, are you sure that you're going to go to heaven when you die? And the answer from the young man who was the spokesman said, there's no way to know that. Only God could judge that. That's literally that's what he said to me and Oliver, which... Makes me want to cry, made Oliver want to cry. But the truth of it is, is we have the promise of life. Not life here. We have the promise of eternal life, which is in Christ Jesus. We have the promise of that. John chapter 15 says that if we abide in him, he will abide in us, produce much fruit. That, that literally we have the promise of his abiding inside of us. That we have no fear. We can know for a fact that we're going to heaven. And I can't tell you how beautiful that is. It's the most amazing thing when someone dies and, and they're a Christian. Because we're able to say, well, no, he's in heaven. It's not, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm going to miss him or her. At the same time, it's a very scary thing to not know where someone's gone. Someone that was nominal, nominally a Christian or not a Christian at all. That's a very scary thing. It's a, it's a hard thing to deal with. I remember when my little sister passed away. She, she got in a car accident when she was 16. I was not a Christian. Not at all. She was. And I remember when they pulled the plug because she was on, a, on you know machines for about a week. When they pulled the plug... The only thing that I could say was she's in a better place, which was a very strange thing for me to deal with because I didn't believe that there was a better place. Even as a non-Christian, what was coming out of my mouth is she's in a better place. And now, today, I could honestly say I know my little sister is in heaven. That's exciting. And I can't tell you how reassuring that is. As much as I miss her on the day, the day-to-day uh, you know, life that we live. I, I miss her all of the time. But truth be told, I know where she is. I know she's in perfection. I know she's not dealing with the problems and struggles of this life. Thank God. The promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. Chapter 2. I mean, verse 2. To Timothy, a beloved son... To Timothy, a beloved son. The word beloved there, agapetos, agape. A son that is loved with an all-forgiving, always-there love. What a beautiful thing. This beloved son, this, this 
word usage is used nine times in Scripture. Eight times it's spoken from God the Father about Jesus Christ. This is the only time that it's used about anyone else in Scripture. What, a, what, a, what an amazing thing to be called. A beloved son, both of God, like I said, and of Paul. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace is his normal introduction, his normal, uh, uh, you know, introduction to a letter. And what he's always saying is, is once you receive the grace of God, you receive the peace of God. The very thing that all men and women are looking for on this earth is peace. But here he adds the word mercy. And I looked up the word mercy. Uh, it, it means um, it, God, it, it, it's God not giving us what we deserve. God not giving us the punishment of what we deserve. Right? That's, that's what it means. But if you turn with me to Luke chapter 10, I think it's explained incredibly clear. Luke 10, verse 30. Luke 10, 30. It says, Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Verse 32. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy to him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. What is mercy? Mercy is when you've been attacked, beaten, half to death, you're ready to die. And someone, like a Samaritan, which by the way, were unclean to the Jews, someone who this Jewish man probably would hate, comes and he bandages you up, gives you the things needed for life, brings you to a place where you could heal, and pays your very debt. That's mercy. That's the mercy that's being spoken about. And this is what, what Paul's asking for for his son in the faith. Mercy. I pray that you have mercy. In this time of struggle, in this place that is hard. Do you understand that that's the same prayer that, that Jesus had for us, that we would be kept, that we would be shown mercy? And by the way, his sacrifice is what shows us mercy. It's what gives us that very mercy, the healing, the redemption, the protection. Back to Second Timothy. Grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, and Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that's a, what a funny word there, our Lord, our Kyrios. What does that mean? I talked about that a little bit earlier with Paul, right, when he met Jesus. His, his commander, his chief. You know, it's funny, I've, I've met a lot of people in the church uh, who want to call Jesus their Savior. In fact, Hopefully, all of us want to call Jesus our Savior. But very often I see a lordship problem. We don't want to call Jesus our commander. The idea is that Jesus is our slave master. I know that's a strange thing to say. 
But but that's the idea that it presents. That literally we are slaves to, to Jesus. And is that how we view Jesus Christ? I mean, hopefully that's not the only view we have of Jesus. But when Jesus tells us to go, do we go? When Jesus tells us to stop, do we stop? When he tells us not to participate in a sin, do we not participate in the sin? I've had conversations just recently with a couple of really close friends of mine where I had to tell them, hey, I, the more I look into your life, the more I see that Jesus is your Savior and that you love him dearly. But you reject his lordship. Well, how? How do we do that? Well, let me ask you, when you did this action, what caused you to, to partake? Well, the circumstances. Well, what about this action? Well, the circumstances. Well, it sure sounds like the circumstances are your Lord. And very often that's how it works in our lives. We're, we're lorded by circumstances. Whatever's going on in front of us is what makes the decision for us. Instead of actually inquiring of the Lord and allowing Him to make decisions for us. That's a pretty hard thing to do. I'm going to tell you, when jobs present themselves, when living situations present themselves, when relationships present themselves, we look at it and we go, wow, what an amazing opportunity. And I'm not saying that all amazing opportunities are not of the will of God. That's not what I'm saying. But very often, that's what makes our decision how amazing the opportunity is. Do we simply take a step back and say, Lord, this is an amazing opportunity, but is it the one that you want for me? I just think of Paul, the man who wrote this letter, and how much he could have done. I mean, if you think about it, the man had huge celebrity status. And instead of taking the opportunity to use his celebrity status to get in good with the Jews and do something amazing with the Jews. He did things that were regarded horrible, horribly by the Jews because he listened to the voice of God and did what he said. If you look at the life of Paul the Apostle, if you were to find someone who's like a success manager or something, and they were to look at the, Paul, the, the life of Paul, they would say he made all of the wrong decisions. He did all of the wrong things. But if you look at what God's Word says about Paul the Apostle, like from the Christian view, from Christ's view of, of Paul, he did everything the Lord told him to do. That's pretty amazing. Are we ruled by circumstance? Or are we ruled by Jesus Christ? I think that's something that the church really needs to hear today because very often the church is ruled by circumstance. Verse 3. I thank God, whom I serve with a pure conscience. Well, how can he say this? How can Paul say that his conscience is pure? Well, if we keep reading, he says something here. He says, as my forefathers did, as without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers night and day. I lift you up to God night and day. My, my, my world revolves around prayer. And it's pretty amazing. When we lift things up to God in prayer and we accept his answer readily, he will direct our path. He will tell us what to do. We no longer have to go to someone. We don't have to sit in a, in a little box and confess to someone before God will talk to us. Literally, we come and we approach God at his throne. But there's another reason why he's able to say that he has a pure conscience in his service. Turn with me to Acts chapter 20. Acts 20. And in verse 
26 and 27, he says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Listen, I've, I've been clear in my teaching of the whole counsel of God. I haven't hidden anything from you. I have a pure conscience in what I do because I pray for you and I've taught you the whole counsel of God. So now when I die, hey, the responsibility is yours. The responsibility is yours. I remember you in my prayers night and day. Verse 4, back to 2 Timothy. Chapter 1, verse 4. Greatly desiring to see you. And skip down to that. It says, that I may be filled with joy. This is Paul's intention for this letter. I desire fellowship with you, my son in the faith. I, I'm... I'm Filled with the desire to, to see you because it would bring me joy. Third John uh, chapter 1, verse 4 tells us that there's no greater thing than for a father to see his children walking in faith. How amazing the desire that this man had to see his this young man. And notice he says in the middle of that verse, he says, be mindful of your tears. And we're not exactly sure what Paul's talking about here. It could be one of two things. It could literally be that when Paul was arrested, Timothy was with him and he was crying. And the last thing that he saw was the tears of his son in the faith. I desire to see your joy. I don't want to see the tears. Or it could be the second thing, which is simply... This young man loved Paul the way that Paul loved him. And he knows that his tears are pouring out because of his, his soon-to-be death. Do we have these relationships in Christ? I think that's a really important thing to think about. Do we have people in our lives that are like a father in the faith or a son in the faith? If we're missing that, there could be an issue. Not to say there always is, but I know personally I have people in my life that I could literally say, you're like a son to me, which is strange. A couple of them are older than me, <laughs> but you're like a son to me in the faith. I also have men in my life that I could literally say, you're like a father to me. One of them is my father-in-law, so he is like a father to me. The truth is we should have these relationships in our lives. Women, it's you know mother and daughter. Why? Because that's what our lives should be defined by, discipleship. We should be being discipled. And we should be discipling others. You want to see your, your knowledge of Jesus Christ, the knowledge of the Word of God, excel? Teach it. I'm serious. When I met my wife, I remember saying to her that I couldn't believe her knowledge of the Word of God. I was nowhere, I was nowhere near her knowledge. Not even close. And then I taught and I taught and I taught. Now my wife comes to me and says, Honey, what does this mean? I don't get it. Thank God. That's exciting. You want to know the Word? Teach the Word. Serious. Women, Teach women. Men, you're always called to it. And you may be thinking in your head, hey, well, I don't have that position. I don't, I'm not called to teach. You're always called to teach. It may not be from the pulpit, teaching from a Bible this way, but you always have a place to teach. It may come up in conversation. It's fun. When I'm at work, my boss doesn't listen to these, but anyways, uh, when I'm at work, it's really cool. Sometimes I get to teach people, uh, uh, even like my boss, and he doesn't even know it's coming because I'm not using scripture verse 
numbers and labels. I'm just telling him Bible verses. And he's like, wow, that's really good. Yeah, I should use that. There's always a place to teach. Then there's others, residences, the residents that live at the uh, facility that I work at. And they just literally want me to come over and talk to them about the Bible. We have opportunities. We need to be using them. He wants to see him, so he will be filled with joy. Verse 5. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you. So, to remind, to bring to remembrance. What an annoying thing, right? When someone constantly reminds you of something. I have a woman that I work with that literally tells me about issues that she has with the facility like 10 times in the same day. It's like, yeah, I know, I'll be right there. You told me two minutes ago. I, I don't know what to do. To be reminded of the things of God is not annoying. It's amazing. In fact, Peter tells us that he he doesn't feel bad at all. In in Second Peter, um, I didn't write down the chapter, but in Second Peter, uh, Peter tells us that it's it, it's what he's planning on doing is reminding them of things that they already know. Guys, that's what we should be doing with one another. Constantly reminding each other. And I have this thing about me, and, I, and, and it's just how I speak. I think it came from you know California or something once we brought it. But when people are talking to me, sometimes I'm saying, I know, I know, I know. I could be saying that, and I don't know. It's just coming out of my mouth. The, the, the truth of the matter is we should be told things that we know from the things of God constantly. It's edifying. It's building up. It's a beautiful thing. Teaching the word of God verse by verse. It's funny. You go through verse by verse and you come across subjects over and over and over and over. And actually when I was teaching junior high, there were times when I felt like, holy moly, should I teach this again? I think I just taught this like yet, like last week. But but it's not a bad thing. It's a it's an amazing thing. And I could tell you, working construction, I do need to be reminded of things. Very often I'm told ten things in a day, and I remember five. That's the same thing with our walk with Christ. Very often we forget about things we've been told five minutes ago. In fact, a a men's study last Tuesday, me and Josh were talking about uh, a specific subject, and that specific subject came up like four or five times through the night, and then the end of our conversation, which happened at like 10.15, super late. We don't normally go that late. We're at Dairy Queen. Oops. Um... The, the end of the conver- the last conversation we had was that very thing. And it happened over and over and over, and it tied together. And it was like, wow, that, that was like the perfect conversation that just happened over four hours. To be reminded. Here he says that he wants to call to remembrance the genuine faith that is within Timothy. Not the false, not the, not the face of faith. The genuine, the proven faith. And he continues by saying that it dwelt first in his grandmother, in your grandmother, he says, Lois. Dwelt. The idea is that it's not a, a visitor, that it's taking up residence. That the faith that she had is something that's there at all times. It dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. I'm persuaded. What persuaded Paul to believe that it was in Timothy, this faith, this genuine faith? 
It's the fact that he could see it in his life. That he lived his life in faith. Can people see faith in our lives as we walk through the day? We should be persuading people. Verse 6. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. I remind you to stir up the gift. Well, what is the gift, first off? Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. For me, it's a page over to the left. 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 4. It says, For every creature of God, did I do that right? No. Chapter 4, verse 6. Sorry about that. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the word of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. So, Timothy's gift is instructing the church. So what is he supposed to be doing? He's supposed to be stirring up his gift. We also see that he's called to evangelism in 1 Timothy. But that that puts the emphasis, that puts the, jo- the job on us. You should be stirring up this gift. If you have a gift, you should be practicing that gift. You should be allowing that gift to be stronger and stronger in your life. And how does that happen? It happens through practice. That's a pretty crazy thing. I played football for 14 years. And by the time I was in my final years, final two years of uh, football, high school, um, everyone that I played with had played well, at least that we're starting, had played football for at least four years. There were two guys that started that played like a year, year and a half, but that's because they were like NFL football size, and that really is just cheating in high school. But most guys who were really good at the game knew the game very well because they practiced. They did it a lot. We did two-a-days. We worked out together. We were a team all of the time. That, that goes the same for your gift. Now understand this. A gift is not something that you create. It's not like, hey, I want to be a teacher, so I'm going to go practice being a teacher. That's not what Scripture is saying. A gift of God is given to you by God. It's something that the Lord has literally given to you so that you can build up the church, so that you could make the church healthy, whatever that gift is. It might be service. It might be giving. It might be worship. It might be any, any of these things. But you should be practicing that gift that you were given to stir up the gift. He says, I want to remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of the, of the hands. Verse 7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, and of love, and of a sound mind. Fear. It's a funny thing. Very often we look at fear, and we don't even see that as sin. But the idea of fear here is timidity, to be timid. God hasn't given us a spirit of timidity, to be rendered helpless or or held back in the things of God. We shouldn't. When truth is truth, then we should proclaim it. We shouldn't be afraid to. There's no reason to, to, to fray back because things could be harmful or people could reject us. But he says, if you put this in the positive, God has given us a spirit of power. The word power there is dunamis. You can almost speak it in the English, dynamite. 
It's a powerful spirit. God has given us power. We're able to go to people. We're able to to talk to people regardless of the circumstances, without fear, knowing that the Holy Spirit of God is the one leading and directing us. The Holy Spirit of God is the one that is speaking through us. Then he says, a spirit of love, agape, unconditional love. Does that really define us? We see in Galatians chapter 5 that the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then it's explained. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, right? All of these things are defining love. But that's the Spirit that God has given us. Is what we're doing in life defined by love? Are we able to truly say, I'm doing all of these things because I love you? That doesn't always look easy, by the way. I'm going to be honest with you. I, I'm going to use my children because it's the easiest example. But there are times that I have to spank my children. That's legal, by the way, so I could say it. CPS can't come get me. There are times that I have to spank my children, and it's not because I hate them. In fact, Before I spank my children, I always tell them, look, I love you, and I really don't want to do this. I I wish I don't have to do this. In fact, there's sometimes I say to them, why are you, I told you I don't want to do this. Why are you making me do this? But you need to be spanked. And I spank them, and afterward I, I talk to them, I tell them I love them. And usually, most of the time, they want to come and they hug me, hold me. Sometimes love doesn't look like some, you know, butterflies and rainbows. Sometimes love doesn't look like that. But we should be defined by the spirit that's within us, which is love. And then he says, and of a sound mind. A mind that doesn't go off and and lose traction is the idea. One that's not captured by every, you know, whimsical dream or idea that comes across. The Spirit of God that is in us gives us sound, soundness of mind. And we'll we'll end right here in verse 8. Therefore, every time you see a therefore in the Bible, you have to ask what it's there for, Right? Because we have the spirit of power, love, and a sound mind, it says, do not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed. Of what? Of the testimony of our Lord. You see, in Judaism, dying on the cross is an abominable thing. To the Romans, dying on the cross was a thing that you really shouldn't even talk about. That's so disgusting. How dare you even speak of it? Paul saying to Timothy, don't be ashamed of it. It is the single most beautiful thing that's ever happened in human history. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Don't be ashamed of me. Now understand this, that that at this time, Paul the Apostle was an abomination to many people in the church. They thought, well, obviously, he's not that godly. He's in the Mamertine prison about to be put to death. We're going to read in later chapters, next time, or not next time, eventually when I teach, uh, that many people have forsaken Paul, left him, disagree with him, want nothing to do with him. He's saying to Timothy, Don't be ashamed of Jesus or me, the suffering that I'm going through. But instead, he says, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel, according to the power of God. The sufferings. Now understand this. 
We are called to the companionship of suffering. Scripture tells us that if we are to follow Jesus, we are to walk as he walked. And if you look at the life of Jesus, it was a life of torment. It really was. It was a life of suffering, even from his birth. Born in a manger because there was no place in the inn for him. Right after he's born in a manger, very quickly, the king of the country sends people for his head to kill him. He's exiled to Egypt, to a country that him and his family know nothing of, only to come back after the death of the king. We see his life just completely covered in suffering, not having a place to rest his head, rejection of most of the Jews, even the rejection of the early church. When he says that you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood to follow me. Many of the people following him say, whoa, that's a hard teaching. Bye. The rejection of the Jewish leadership. The crucifixion. I mean, think about it. It's a life just tattered with suffering. Then we look at Paul. Great man of faith. Becomes a Christian. They try to kill him. They lower him down in a basket. They try to kill him. I mean, life of suffering. But understand that our suffering is always supposed to be for Jesus Christ. You know, I, I've heard in the church very often this Eeyore mentality. Uh, life goes on. Yeah, I know why I'm going through this. It's because I'm a Christian. That is not at all what the Scripture shows. It shows all of these men, from Peter, Paul, Jesus, all of the apostles being martyred in some way, except for John. He's martyred with old age. But all of them have this attitude of gratefulness, of joy, of peace, of patience, of kindness. Think about this. Yes, as Christians, we definitely will suffer. You will. It's promised. Scripture tells us that all who, who want, all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. You will. There will be suffering as a Christian, no matter what. If you're truly living for Jesus, you will suffer. If you've never heard that before, well, there's, there's the truth. But that's not a scary thing. That's not a deterrent. That's an exciting thing. I get to share in the suffering of Jesus Christ. I get to have fellowship with Jesus in my suffering for God. Amazing. What a beautiful thing. It's funny, Oliver was telling me uh, a story uh, just recently, about him riding a motorcycle, and he's riding this little Honda Shadow, and he's driving down the road, and every motorcycle person he's seeing on the road, he does the little motorcycle wave, and I'm sure you've all seen that. And uh, he doesn't get a wave back. I think he did it to like three or four people. Oh, eight people. Eight people. And no one waves back at him. And he's like, am I doing it wrong? And What's going on right now? And then he gets on his mom's 1900, 1900, big, beautiful, I mean, bike. And he does the wave, and the person waves back. He does the wave again, the person waves back. I mean, he had the fellowship of bike riders. Obviously, he was riding the wrong bike at first. But guys, this is the truth. We're able to have fellowship with Jesus Christ through suffering. We wave at him and he waves back. When we look at suffering that way, it makes it a whole lot easier. It should bring joy to our heart, give us peace in the midst of trial. Well, that's what I have for you. Let's pray. 
and we could fellowship. Father God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for your word. We ask you to allow it to sink deep into our hearts, to change things inside of us. Father, we thank you for the fellowship of your suffering. We thank you for our brother Paul who wrote to his son Timothy. Father, we ask that you do continue to guide us, to teach us, to grow us more and more into the image of your Son. We love you. We praise you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.